Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. So we began a series on the marks of a healthy church in Last week, within that series, I began a, a mini-series, if you would, on the unity of the church and mentioned the fact that we'd be spending the next four weeks, including last week, going through two passages, um, Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, and then 1 Corinthians 12 through chapter 14, and looking at this concept of unity in that the, the messages for this week, next week, and then the following week or would actually want to be subsets, if you would, under the concept of unity. Now, it comes from, um, in my brain, Jesus' comment regarding those who would come after his original disciples. Remember, we talked last week at the beginning that Jesus in John 17 in his high priestly, high priestly prayer for his disciples stated that I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so then he goes on and says specifically what he's praying about for those who would believe through the, the words which his initial 11, if you would, 12, but then take Judas Iscariot out, would write, and that is that we would be one. That we would be one. Why? So that the world would know that he is one. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And that though being three, yet they are still one. And that through us, those future 
disciples that he is praying for that the world would know. And so our unity, the unity of the church, is paramount, is critical into our evangelism, if you would, into the opportunity for the world to know. And so a few weeks ago, when um, I had taught from Matthew 16, um, who do men say that I am, who do you say that I am, I mentioned that I see their armada of the church, and so we mentioned that again last week with the worship, discipleship, fellowship, and stewardship, but that all four of those parts are brought together under this umbrella of unity. We have to be one. God calls us, Christ calls us to be one in all these areas. So it's not like these are four separate areas. These are all interrelated areas within the assembly in which we ought to be functioning, and we ought to be one in each of those things. And so we saw that as we looked at the beginning part of Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 last week. We looked at the first six verses last week, our memory passage, okay, which we'll continue to have as our memory passage even into June. okay. But we saw right off the bat that Paul begins all this in verse 1 with a command, with a challenge to us. And it's not necessarily to be unified. A lot of times we go, okay, we're going to talk about this unity of the church, but the command was to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. And so last week we began to spend a lot of time talking about the calling. So, what's the calling? Anybody remember? Say again? To be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, are you glad Marcia gave me the answer? Come on. Everybody's kind of looking at me with this dead stare. Okay? To be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God has called us to be. Okay? And so Paul then says in Philippians chapter 3 that he is pressing toward the mark for the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. Right? And so in that calling then, um, we are then in the, the part then of John 17 as well. Paul then continues on that we're... in. Challenge to be walking in that calling, right? Endeavoring, and so the word endeavoring is what? A word of impact, okay? It's not something that's just, well, you know, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't happen, but you are actually working towards something. You're endeavoring to keep the bond of, the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, okay? So the unity of the Spirit, so that's what we talked about, unity of the Spirit, okay? But we didn't really talk about the bond of peace. We're going to talk about that a little bit today because the bonding situation, okay, talks about how things are what? They're brought together and they're, they're put together, okay? We'll talk about that toward the end of the message today, how we're brought together in a bond of peace, okay? But last week, we talked about this unity that we're supposed to have, okay, in specifically unity of doctrine, okay, that we're supposed to see. And we were told seven areas in which we were supposed to have a unity in our doctrine, Okay, anybody remember what the first one was? Unity of what? What's the first one? Come on, we're memorizing it. The body, good, okay? We're unity of the body. There's only one body. And again, remember, this goes beyond family Bible church. Just talking about globally, there is only one body of Christ. Okay? We have schismed it, if you would, okay? And we have denominations, okay? So a $5 bill, it's not the same as a $1 bill, right? So if I owe you $100, you, don't want, you want me to give you 25s, not 21s. You get it? I mean, you're a little bit, you know, detailed in that, and, and you, 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 you're judging me based upon the, the, the numbers I'm going to give you. You understand what a denomination is. It's not exactly the same. Do you understand? 
Okay, well, that's the same thing. So denominations, there's not a oneness in that, okay? Now, there's a difference in it, a diversity. We'll talk about that next week, okay? But the fact is there's one body. There's only one body, okay, whether I like it or not. And some of those denominations that we may not agree with, the fact is that there can be, and probably are, what? Believers in those denominations, okay? Because God is God, okay? One, spirit. There's not multiple spirits, we're told to test the spirits, okay? There is only one Holy Spirit, okay? And so 2 Corinthians 11, I talked about that last week, okay? How that Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because someone may come in with another gospel, another spirit, and another Jesus, and you may very well accept them. Which means that there are people out there who say that they're coming in the spirit, but it's not the what? It's not the same spirit. That's exactly right, okay? There is only one spirit. There's not multiple spirits. There is only one hope, one hope of your calling. And what's the hope of your calling? We talked about that last week. Do you remember? What's the hope of the calling? What's the calling? Remember the calling. It's to be conformed to the image of Christ. So what's the hope of being conformed to the image of Christ? Anybody remember? I'm going to go back and preach the same message. <laughs> it said you get to heaven, that you can be in the presence of God. Why? Because you're conformed to the image of Christ. Because being apart from being conformed to the image of Christ, you cannot be in the presence of God. You can't. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so that is the hope of our calling, that God is the one who began the work in us. He's the one who's performing the work in us. He's the one who's continuing the work in us. And so he is the one who's conforming me to the image of his blessed son in, so that one day when I am transformed, right, I get to be in his presence. Okay, so one hope, one Lord. Again, there's only one Lord. Okay, there's only one God who's over all things. We'll see that in a moment, but there's only one Lord. And again, I've mentioned the fact that I think it's Yahweh that he's talking about. Go back to Shema, Hero Israel, the, the Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. There is only one faith, not multiple faiths. There's only one way to come to Jesus Christ. There's not multiple ways to come to Jesus Christ. There is only one baptism. Okay, again, you got to struggle with that and debate that one, but there's only one baptism. There, in, you know, I mentioned last week, and I'm not harping on it again, but infant baptism isn't real. It's not in the Bible, okay? And so you got to struggle with this one, okay? There's only one baptism, okay? One God. And we can say, wow, we get it. But, you know, again, we, we kind of make God in our own image sometimes. Uh, that um, comes from, um, thank you, Michael Card. We, we, make, we make you in our image so our faith is idolatry. And, and I just, I think of that so many times, it's like, we do, you know, as our denominations, as we're splitting the body, right, each one of us want to make God into what we want him to be, rather than looking at his word and studying his word, finding out who God is, and wanting to become like him, we want him to become like us, and so there is only one God, who is the father of all, right, so he's the creator over everyone, right, and he's placed what may be known of him in everyone, he is in all, through or through all, and in you all, specifically then, in the believers, okay? So, we want to slide into this next part of the passage um, today, because if the mark of the healthy church, okay, um, is individuals, if you would, who are walking worthy of the calling with which they're called, okay, then it stands to reason then when those individuals who are walking worthy of the, the calling with which they are called, come together, what will they desire to do? 
If you're walking worthy of the, the calling with which you are called, and you're all trying to do that, and we're all trying to do that, what are we going to do when we get together? Work together to do what? To walk worthy in the calling which we are called. So we're not going to go through Hebrews chapter 10, right? But we know from Hebrews chapter 10, one of the things that the, the writer of Hebrews challenges us to do is to not, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves so much as we see the day approaching, right? But that as we come together, we would do what? Does anybody remember that passage? I think it's verse 25, Hebrews 10, that we would provoke to one another to love and good works. Exactly right. So when we come together, we're seeking to provoke one another to walk worthy of the calling, which with we are called. You get it? Okay? That we want to desire to do this. Synergy is where I want to go today. Okay? Um, as I was praying about these, these passages and I was going through them, God just kind of put this word upon me because this is exactly what a healthy church then looks like. If they are seeking to be unified, right, with a common purpose, with a common goal, with a common calling, then they are going to work together in that. So synergy literally is a word that you can see up in the definition from Oxford Dictionary. The interaction or cooperation of two or more agents or individuals to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their, their separate effects or their, their separate abilities. And so, for example, in testimony time when I shared about Steve and I going out, I'm grateful that Steve goes. Because again, with the battles that I have on Wednesdays and, you know, the, the, the you know, oh, you know, I'm just, oh, you know, I know Steve is going to hold me accountable. He's going to be here. Now, there may be times on Wednesday where Steve's probably thinking, what? Boy, I'd rather stay home and take a nap. But Bob's going to be sitting there waiting on me. Okay. And so in a sense, we're holding each other accountable. And then when we go out, he has an ability and I have ability. He has a background. I have a background. And together, we're able to talk to individuals better than we could talk to them alone, singly. Okay. So that's the kind of concept that we're going to talk about today. Okay. So synergism, the synergism, the synergy of the church. It's very important that the body is working together. Okay. And we've already talked about this. It's not my church. It's whose church? It's God's. It's Christ's church. It's his body. Okay. And so again, as we go into it, this thing is rooted then in our calling. Go back to verse one. Okay. It's all about walking worthy of the calling with which we are called. Okay. And that calling is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so as I stated, it then makes sense as Chuck read this morning, as hopefully you saw as we come through, that this actually does become the calling for the assembly. As we come together, that same individual calling is the calling that we have when we are all together. So I'm jumping in the middle of the passage right now because the, the rest of it is going to be built upon this. But we see um, verse 13. So you can see in verse 11, that he himself gave, we'll talk about that, for the equipping of the saints. Verse 13, till we all what? Come. Till who comes? All of us. Combined together. Till we all Come, that literally, till we arrive. The, the idea there is, if you look up the words and see where they're being used in the New Testament, the idea is going someplace and you get there. Okay? It's an arrival concept. Okay? Till we all arrive. So we come to this place, to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, what's the goal? In this, in this conformance to the image of Christ, we want to be unified as a church in oneness of faith, in knowledge of the Son of God. That it's not some of us who know God. I don't believe in the, the fact that the church is comprised of those who are believers and those who aren't believers. Some believe that. That doesn't make any sense. 
just by nature, just by very definition, biblically, the church is a group of called out ones. I mean, ecclesia, the word church in the Greek is ecclesia. So out of, called from, okay? And so we are the group of called out ones, okay? And so the fact is that your calling is a, net, is a very part of the, the very name of our grouping together, called out ones. We are the called out ones, okay? So it stands the reason then, if we're the called out ones, the ones who really weren't called, who were just kind of hanging, they're not really part of the what? The church from that perspective, okay? Now, it's okay, being there, does that make sense? And, and you love and that kind of stuff. But the fact is, the church in and of itself is not a building. It's the people. Okay? And so the unity of the church is not the unity of this corporation. It's the unity of those who are called out ones. Those who are the ones who are following Jesus Christ. And so what should we want our unity to be in? Well, first of all, to the, to the unity of faith. Secondly, to the knowledge of the Son of God. So I think the faith in knowledge, both tie over to the Son of God. So the unity of faith of the Son of God and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. But it's the second part that's really interesting as well. Do you remember from John 17, when I was going through it, that Jesus was praying for us that we would be perfect, mature in our oneness. And it was through the perfecting of that oneness that the world would know that he was real. Well, it comes right back then that till we all arrive, all come, to be a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal of this assembly, the goal of this assembly, now, I think it should be the goal of all assemblies, okay, should be that we look more like Jesus as a whole. That what God does in each one of us individually when he brings us together synergistically causes all of us then as a whole to look even more so like Jesus. Till we all come to a what? What's, what's it say? To a what man? Perfect man. Paul was a perfectionist. Don't you hate perfectionists? Jesus said, be ye what? Perfect. Even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the goal. The goal is to, to, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Christ was perfect. And so if we want to look like Jesus, then our goal has to be, when we are brought together combined, to be perfect, to be a perfect man. If that's not your goal, your goal is short. Your goal is short. If, if your goal is just worldly, it's wrong. The goal needs to be that we want to be like Jesus. I, I, I had a stop. I was, um, I was a missionary for a little bit when we started planting the church. And I had a stop. They wanted a five-year goal and a ten-year goal, and I can't do that. Or I could, but they didn't like They want more concrete. Because what's my goal? My goal is a year from now that I look more like Jesus than I do now. I can't define it any other way. I don't know how that looks. Because I'm the, not the one who's doing the work in me. Does that make sense? I just know that when I look back... 20 years from now, I want to see that God has done a work in me and that I look, look more like Jesus. So I know, I mean, I look back 40 years ago, right? I don't know me. You wouldn't know me. I'm a totally different individual. But I know I'm not the one who did the work in me. I didn't know what looking like Jesus would look like, and I promise you I don't look like Jesus now. But I look more like Jesus now than I did back then. Does that make sense? 
And I praise God for bringing together people who have a desire to look more like Jesus, and, and, and they're going to prompt me and encourage me and prod me in my, in my walk with him as well. Okay? So the maturity of the church, but it's according to what? The standard or the measure of Christ. It's not according to what? Our standard. When we have our own standards, think about it. It's easy to what? Measure up. Some know this from my, my testimony, but, but it was not living up to my own standard, which drew me to Christ, and I got saved. I had my own standard. I grew up in church. I had my own sense of morality, my own sense of righteousness. And I was good, thank you very much. But God allowed me to break my own standards of morality. While I'm reading, so it comes challenged me about reading the Bible, and I said, well, you know, no, no, no. So anyways, I, I said I'd read the Bible, and I, and I did start reading the Bible. And I was reading the book of Romans, chapter 2. And there's a law, even under the Gentiles, that when they do the things according to the law, they prove to themselves that there is a law. And I realized at that moment that I had my own sense of law, my own sense of commandments, my own sense of real, uh, morality, and I did what? I broke my own. And if I couldn't live to my own, quote-unquote, righteous standards, how could I ever live to God's? Just take the first ten, the biggies, the ten big ones, right? I mean, there's over 600 commands in the Old Testament that we can talk about, and we can come in the New Testament, okay? But you shall have what? No other gods before me. If you've ever placed anything above God. Now, literally, in the Hebrew, it says, you shall have no gods in my presence, or no other gods in my presence, okay? So it's not even like having them above me. I don't even want them in my presence. It's literally what it means before me, okay? So in front of my face. And so, but literally, if you've ever then had another God that you served and that you, that you listened to before God, so God wants you to do this, but something else tells you to do that, and you do that, you have another God. Make sense? That was kind of wiped out, right? Destroyed. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, whether in heavens above or the earth beneath or the waters below. If you've ever worshipped something, it could even be a woman. Okay? And I remember when I first met Marcia, you know, I wanted that. I wanted her. And I want her. I want her. But she was become like an idol to me at that moment. But I didn't know Jesus Christ. I didn't know that. I didn't know how that played out. But the fact is, an idol is not necessarily something that I made with my craft in my hand. But you've got to be careful what it is. And you can put whatever you want in there. Okay? But the fact is, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, you can put another idol there. Number three is you should not use the name of Yahweh your God. What? In vain. We say that. But what does it mean? Meaninglessly. Meaninglessly. If you've ever used God's name meaninglessly, not really meaning, not really calling on him. Oh, OMG. You know, people want to hide behind their little texting stuff, but that's using God's name in vain. Little OMG stuff. Okay? You're abusing his name, abusing who he is. Okay? Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you get where I'm going on this one? Okay? I can go through all ten of these things, and I realize that what? I broke those. All of them. Every single one of them. If I can't even live to those standards, I'm done for. This is the standard. It's the standard of holiness. 
the standard of righteousness. It's not my standard. It's God's standard. That's the standard by which he wants us to come together. He wants us to prod one another toward a maturity, a perfectness, a completeness in our assembly, not being willing to accept with, for complacency. Again, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to ask you at the end too. What's your goal for this assembly? What's your goal for your life? But what's your goal for this assembly then? Are you coming just to punch a ticket? Don't punch a ticket. God doesn't want you to punch tickets. He wants your heart. To love him with all of his heart, your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. He told the church of Ephesus, he says, I know your works. I know how awesome all these things are. I know how you've tested those who said they're, they're prophets and they're not. But this one thing you lack, I have one thing against you. You've lost your first love. And if you don't repent and return from whence you have fallen, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your candlestick, the glory. That's how important it is to him. That's the goal of when we come together. So how does, recognizing the goal, but how do we achieve the goal? Well, three parts, okay? And we're going to go through these um, relatively quickly, okay? Quicker than it looks like on your sermon note sheet. There's a whole lot of verses there I'm not going over. They're there for your study, okay? Some things we're going to be going over in the next two weeks, okay? So again, repetition is the key to learning. Over these next couple of weeks, you're going to be hearing the same theme over and over again, in a sense. But we have the endowment of Christ, the equipping of the leaders, and the edifying of the members. First, the endowment of Christ, which we, would, which we see beginning in verse 7, okay? So if you're there, verse 7, it says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So first of all, we have this general equipping, this general endowment, giving of gifts that Christ does. He gives to, who does it say? But to what? Each one of us. To each one of us. Not just to special people, but to each one of us, grace was given. It was a provision of his grace, and it's according to what? His measure. God has gifted you, and we're going to talk about this more next week, so I'm going to spend a lot of time on it, okay? But God has gifted you specifically according to his own desires and according to his own measure. But he's also then gifted, we come down a little bit further, okay? Um, specifically, he gave some to equip the church, okay? Verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, right? So he gave then specific ones. Now, I skipped a couple of verses there. It's a quote from Psalm 68. It's not germane to our subject right now, but if you want to talk about it later, I did a lot of study on that this week because I wanted to know um, more about that. But it's not germane to our subject, so I'm kind of passing it by just so you know that, okay? But verse 11 then, he talks about four spe specific um, gifts that he's given to the church. Now, again, I don't have time to get into all one, each one of these very, um, for a long time, okay? But the first one we see are the apostles. You have a lot of verses on your sheet, so we're not going to go through all those. But the first grouping of verses that are there belong to the 11. Again, Judas Iscariot was the son of perdition, which he knew, so I'm only talking about the 11, not necessarily the 12. And then you can talk about whether, you can have the great debate whether Mattathias becomes an apostle or not, okay? I don't necessarily see it that way, but we have the 11, okay? And then in Acts chapter 14, we're told that Barnabas and Paul are apostles. They're called apostles. But that's the only time 
in the scriptures that Barnabas is referred to as an apostle. Paul, then, is continually referred to as an apostle. He begins his epistles with Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and the faithful in Christ Jesus, yada, 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 okay? And so each one of those, his, his um, epistles, he refers to himself that he's an apostle, okay? But it's by God's will, it's by the grace of God, it's by God, by the cr- grace of Christ Jesus. Um, so in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is actually referred to as an apostle of God as well. Now, with all that being said, what is an apostle? An apostolos, apostle, is one who is apostelloed, okay? And you say, well, okay, that helps me a whole lot. It's an official representative of someone else. So an ambassador is an apostle. We officially send out ambassadors from our nation to represent us and to deliver our messages to other nations. So from that perspective, they're like an ambassador, okay? They're, they're um, a delegate. If, if we were in a, a, a denomination and there was a denominational gathering, okay, we would send delegates to the convention so they could vote on our behalf. In a sense, our senators and our congressmen are, or should be, <laughs> apostles um, from our state and from their constituents representing us to the land. So an apostle is clearly just a, a, an official representative, okay? So um, there are, in my brain, big A apostles. Those are the 11, maybe 12. I think Paul actually was the 12th. I don't think that they should have gotten Mattathias, but I could be wrong in that. I'm not going to die for that one. Um, when we get to heaven, we'll find out how that plays out, okay? Because I think there's only 12, right? From the book of Revelation, we know there's 12 apostles, okay? Not 13, there's 12. Okay, so you've got to make a debate. Is, is it Matthias or is it Paul? And so I think it's Paul. Anyways, um, but there's the big A apostles, okay, who we refer to. But there's little A apostles, official representatives. In my brain, maybe missionaries. You know, we send them out as, as a church to represent us and to deliver a message. Okay? Secondly, we have this grouping called prophets. Now, th- realistically, from the Old Testament, we think many times a prophet as being one who foretells what's going to happen, okay? And literally, that's baked right into the word, okay? Prophesis, okay? And so, but it also is one who, who proclaims the message, is the idea, who foretells the message that's there. And so when you go back to Ezekiel, you go back to Jeremiah, you go back to Isaiah, not everything that they were declaring were things that were going to happen in the future, they were actually just declaring what God had what? Spoke. Spoke to them. That's exactly right, okay? So, bring that over into the New Testament. The first one we see is John the Baptist. Did John the Baptist foretell the future? Not really, okay? I mean, he proclaimed Jesus coming and stuff like that, but the reality is most of what he proclaimed was um, directive about sin and the need for repentance, Okay? Judas and Silas were told in the book of Acts, and you have that on your sermon note sheet, okay, that they gave exhortations from the word of God, okay? Um, were then told by Jesus as well in Matthew 24 that in the end times, though, that there were going to be false prophets, okay? And who were able to do what? They're going to be able to do signs and wonders, okay? So, so, so there is that concept, though, with the big P, the little P, you know, prophets, prophets, you know, kind of concept. So there is the concept of those who are 
proclaiming the message of God, little p prophets, if you want to call it that way. But there is the potential for the big p prophets to come back. And we'll talk about this in a moment, come back, um, at the end times. And they're going to be able to do signs and wonders that Jesus said, if it was possible, they would be able to deceive even the very elect. It's not going to be able to be, they're not going to be able to deceive the very elect. But if it was possible, in other words, these signs and wonders are going to be so impressive. And you see some of these guys who are, do the sleight of hand and do the um, illusion type stuff. Some of the stuff they do right now are what? Pretty impressive. Pretty incredible. I was infatuated with uh, magic growing up. Okay, and so I studied magic books and such and stuff, and I learned optical illusions and, and how you can kind of do the mirrors and stuff like that and make it look like things are happening and they're not happening. And so when I see some of these now, I kind of look at it and I think, okay, how are they what? How are they doing that? And when somebody's standing outside of a store and they're running their, something through a, a glass or whatever, I'm looking at that thing and I'm thinking, I don't know how that's played out. I, I don't know how. So I'm not saying that those people are the devil. I'm just saying, be careful. Be careful, because Jesus said in the end times, okay, that there's going to be some pretty impressive stuff that's going to happen. So when they start proclaiming that with a message, because the book of Deuteronomy, again, it's on your sermon note sheet, right? The warning from Deuteronomy is there as well, okay? How do you know? How do you know a false prophet? You know, if they're able to do all these things, okay, how do you know? Well, if they're telling you, they're turning you away from the one true God, they're a what? They're a false prophet, okay? Now, the reality is if they proclaim that something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, they're a what? False prophet, okay? I got a whole lot of thoughts about Jesus' return, but I'm not picking days and hours. Do you know why? Because I'll be wrong. Because no man knows the what? They are the hour, except the Father only. Jesus said he didn't even know it, okay? So all these people who are picking days and picking hours and picking years and stuff like that, stop it, you know? It's, it's like I don't really believe what Jesus said. But Paul said you'll know the what? You'll know the season. It'd be like a woman in travail, Okay? So we ought to be able to look and see how things go on. Anyways, but with this then, these two groupings together, the apostles and prophets, are very important because it is a grouping that was used in the early church, okay, um, to lay the foundation of the church, okay? So that we're told in Ephesians 2, so again, context, remember we're in Sunday school, we're, we're going through like inductive Bible study, and so we want to be able to keep to the local context and then the greater context of the book. So just taking what Paul was saying from this book, Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, talking to us Gentiles, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but not the what? Evangelists and pastors and teachers. But you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And then in chapter 3, Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the church. And he says, how that by revelation he, that is Christ, made known to me the mystery in which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Okay, So there is a specific grouping, apostles and prophets, Okay, which had a specific function in the beginning of the church. Are you tracking with me? Okay, which I don't believe that they have any further. There was no need for it. Okay, just as the signs and the wonders that the apostles, big A apostles, were doing, okay, were there to to confirm the message of the gospel. Okay, it gave it gave a confirmation to the message that was true. Okay, so we'll leave that there, and you can talk to me later more about that if you want to. Evangelists. Okay. The term evangelist is the word evangelist 
is just a um, transliteration of the Greek word. The Greek word is uh, euangelios, okay? And so you can see that they make the U from the U into a V, and it looks just exactly what we have, okay? Literally means a good message or a good messenger, one who's proclaiming a good message. And so Luke 1 and Luke 2 are who? Who were the evangelists in Luke 1 and Luke 2? Say again. Gabriel, angels. That's exactly right, okay? So they came saying they had what? Good news. Yeah, glad tidings, good tidings of great joy. Okay, they were evangelists. Literally, that's in the Greek, that's what they were. They were evangelists. They were coming, okay? Romans 1, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, right? I'm not ashamed to proclaim the gospel of Christ, okay? And so the word gospel there is the word ungelios, okay? So I'm not ashamed to proclaim, to be a proclaimer of the good news. For it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, to the Jews first, but then also to the the Gentiles, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. You know that passage very well, right? Paul talks about, I delivered to you the what? The good news, the gospel, just as I received it. How that Christ died for our sins according to uh, the scriptures. How that he was buried and how he raised again on the third day according to the scriptures, right? And then how he was, verse 5. I always include verse 5 because everybody talks about verse 3 and 4. But verse 5 to me is important. What's verse 5 say? Anybody know? How he was seen. How he was seen. This isn't just something we've made up, but he was seen, first of all, by Peter. And then and he goes through this whole long list and he talks about how 500 people at one time saw him. Okay? So that's all the good news. That Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, and he was seen. It was verified. It's been validated. In fact, it's one of the things we talked about to the individual on Wednesday night about the fact of the, the resurrection. If, if you know, the, the Romans and the Jews were both very against this message, why don't we find any records, Roman records or Jewish records, of how they researched this and they found his bones elsewhere? If, if, if that was a, a very important thing, why are people dying for the message, right, if it's not true? But secondly, if you have these two prominent, powerful groups who are looking into this thing, why don't we have any records at all? We have thousands upon thousands of pieces of manuscripts of the Bible. We have, we have, um, we have cuneiforms and stuff like that. We, we can go into the, the, the annals of Persia and talk about Persiopolis and how Persia was designed and developed. And all. Why don't we have any manuscripts? Why don't we have any pieces of evidence declaring where, they, where Jesus was found? That his, his followers say this, but we found his bones in such and such a place. You can say it's an argument from silence, but to me it's a pretty powerful argument from silence. When you have people who are totally against you. Anyways, so, um, that's the good news. To me, part of that, great part of that good news is he was seen. Okay? Pastors and teachers. Literally, the word pastor is the word shepherd. So again, we talked about that in Sunday school a few weeks back. Okay, the the word pastor is pastoral. It's shepherd. Okay, and teacher or instructors. Okay, and so Jesus was the what? The good shepherd. Okay, and Jesus said um, to to um, his disciples. Okay, that they ought to be. Then he also called himself a, a teacher. Okay, and he says that the disciple ought to be just like his what. 
his master, his teacher. It says master in the King James, but literally in the, in the, in the Greek, and if you read New King James, it's teacher, okay? That the disciple is like, the student is like his, his teacher, okay? That's why you, you follow somebody because you want to become like them. Funny part in seminary is when you're going through um, homiletics. Homiletics is teaching, okay, when you go through teaching past, uh, preaching classes, okay? There were guys who would come in with glasses or whatever. Now, I wear glasses not because I'm trying to emulate somebody, because I want to see. Anyways, um, and so I asked Marcia to go with me to Stanton on, on Tuesday because i got to get new glasses. And there's only one reason she's going with me to Stanton. Anybody know why? No, no, I asked her to go. Because I can't see them. I need to pick out new frames. How do you know what a frame looks like when you can't even see them? You know, okay, I can see them this way. Oh, I think those will look kind of good. I wonder what they'll look like. I take these off, put these on. It's like, I can look in 10 mirrors. It's not going to help me. But it looks kind of weird when I put these on and then I put the other frames on. Oh, yeah, it looks really great. Double mirror, double frames. Anyways, she's only going for one reason. So I can see. Make sense? But there were guys in seminary. They didn't need glasses at all. They br- but they'd bring glasses when they go to preach because they're just going to have them, you know, in it. It, it, because their favorite preacher, what? They were just a prop. They wore glasses. And they thought that made a good preacher by having the glasses and taking them off. And just, So you know that I hardly ever take my glasses off. And if I do that, I, I lose them. Anyway, so <laughs> at this age, you don't do things like that. It's just you test yourself. Anyways, but a shepherd, not only then was Jesus a shepherd, but then he referred to those who were leading the flock, the elders, Okay, Acts 20 is, is when Paul called for the elders of Ephesus to Miletus, to join him in Miletus, and he challenged them. Um, and so you can go back and check this out, but he challenged them to shepherd the flock over which God had made them overseers. Okay, so they were elders, that was their function, or their, their, their title, but they had two functions, they shepherded and they oversaw. Okay, so part of the shepherd, though, the term literally is one who feeds the sheep. Now, I think this is kind of cool. Okay? It's one who feeds the sheep. What's an instructor? What's a teacher? One who is, feeds his students, if you would. Okay? Or teaches his students. Okay? And so both of these terms brought together really have an idea of teaching, leading, feeding, nurturing nurturing those who are underneath them, okay? And so that's what's going to lead into then this next part, and that is then the equipping of the leaders, okay? And so it says that he gives us some, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the equipping of the saints. Literally, the word katartismos um, is, I would bring it over to outfit, to refresh, so it is used in a naval sense of a boat coming into dock, okay, and it's being refreshed. If there was war damage to it, it's being fixed. But mainly, it's going to be re-outfitted. They're going to give it new, more, uh, uh, more victuals um, and, and things like that. Uh, men who were going on leave are going on leave, but they're going to bring in what? Fresh bodies, okay? So the idea, then, is to refresh the condition of, okay? So... Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, right? What's our job? To what? Say again? To refresh. To, refresh, to outfit you, okay? So I'm thinking an outfitter. I've gone to Canada for 20 years, led that. And I wasn't necessarily the outfitter right off the bat, right? 
So we had somebody who up there was the outfitter. What was the job of the outfitter? Say again. Make sure we got back safe? No, not necessarily, because he didn't necessarily go with us. He wasn't our guide. He was our outfitter. Give us everything we needed to make sure our adventure was successful. Okay? So he prepped the boat. So when we got it off the train and, and walked down, the boat was ready for us. Okay? Uh, later, when I became the leader of this, okay, I would talk to them ahead of time, and I would tell them our menu for the week. And we would instantly go upriver. So we would get there. And then we'd instantly get on the boats and we'd go another 26 miles upriver, okay? So we're like nothing, pristine, okay? But when we got there, they already had frozen the foods for my menu. All we had to do is pack them in the, the, the coolers, put the coolers on the boat, and boom, we're gone. We had already two full 20-gallon things of fuel, and so we were ready to go. Does that make sense? They had everything ready. He outfitted us for the journey. And then we what? And we went on our journey. We went on our adventure. Okay? So that's the job of the elders, is to outfit the, the group, outfit the assembly. Okay? So what does that word mean? Well, it means to mend nets. Okay? That word is used for um, when Jesus met the, the disciples. They were mending nets. That's fixing them. Okay? Repairing them. Okay? Uh, Luke 6, 4, this is 40, this is the one I referred to earlier about Jesus. Um, he said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. So there's the, the idea then of being perfectly trained, okay? That there's a, the idea of that's coming alongside. Galatians 6, 1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Well, the idea here is one is has been kind of wounded in battle, if you would, kind of like that ship we were talking about, right? And so those who are spiritual, those who have the ability, should do what? Come alongside them and try to patch up the holes, help them out, okay? 2 Timothy 3.17, this is the, the passage where we know verse 16 says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, right? And it says that the man of God may be complete, this is the, from artios, you see with the kata artismo, this is the second part, to be complete, thoroughly equipped, ek artizo, for every good work, that the idea is that God has then given us his word so that we, when we're equipping the saints, ought to use this in order to equip us, okay? So, the equipping of leaders, to outfit the saints into, the min- into ministering. So you'll see in verse 11, it says, um, for, the, um, for the equipping of saints, and it says for the work of ministry, right? That's wrong. It's, it's ace. In, in the Greek, it's, it's ace. And so literally it says, for the equipping of the saints into the work of the ministry, into the edifying of the body of Christ. A very important transition. It's not my job to do the ministry. It's not my job to do the edifying of the body of Christ. Whose job is it? It's the bodies. We'll talk about that in a moment, right? So my job, David's job, Chuck's job, Steve's job, is to outfit the saints into ministering. To serving, literally to serve, okay? So to continue to present opportunities and teachings that encourage people to serve one another. To outfit the saints into mature doctrine. To make sure that we're teaching biblical truth, okay? That it's not, um, you know, an inch thick and a mile wide, okay? Sometimes I maybe get um, accused of being a little bit too deep, too long, or whatever, but I'd rather be accused of too deep and too long than too, too, too uh, nothing. Anyways. Shallow, thank you. 
to offer the saints into mutual edification. Again, it's our goal, it's our job, it's what I'm going to be held accountable to before the Lord to try to equip the saints into mutual edification, which we're going to talk about now. Because, that's the third part, is the edifying of the members. And that is, it's the members' job to do it together. So, he goes through this process. It's very simple, and we're going to talk again a little bit more about this over the next two weeks, okay? But what's the whole process? That the whole body does it, right? So we already know what the goal is, right? That we all come one new man, you know, measure the stature of the fullness of Christ. But it's that the whole body being joint and knit together. Remember the bond of peace that we talked about? So something being held together. So it's your body. Think about your body right now, how God did this for you. Isn't it an amazing thing that your body's just like, falls apart, it doesn't happen. Now, I feel like my body's falling apart a little bit, but it's still being held together, okay? You know, I mean, literally my leg didn't, you know, even though my knee may hurt, my, my leg just doesn't go, you know? It's all being held together with sinew and, and with the tendons and everything else, and that's the picture that's being brought here. That, again, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, but can you do this? Okay, everybody do this. Okay, and you know, how, this is easy to do, isn't it? It's not easy to do. There's too many things that are involved in this. You need to go through your skeletal system. You need to go through the muscle system. You need to go through the, the, um, the cardiovascular system. You need to talk about the, um, oh, what's the, the nerve system, neural system, okay? And none of that, but people always talk about that kind of stuff, but you heard me say it, and then you saw me do it. So the fact that you did all, all these parts are all coming together in this one little teeny-weeny moment. It's something that seems so simple. So easy. But if I do this, I actually was going to have somebody have a football in the, in, in the congregation today and throw me a football while I was talking. And I was going to catch it, but I thought, I'll probably miss it. Anyways, <laughs> it would destroy my purpose. Anyways, but, but that while you're doing it, I don't know about you, but do you have 10,000 thoughts going through your brain? I mean, even right now while I'm talking, you know, you may be thinking, boy, I want to for lunch or one what I shouldn't even bring that up. Anyways, but, but I do. I mean, it's a, we, God has this fearfully and wonderfully made us. It's an amazing thing. But we are then held together. But look what it says then. In the edifying of the members, it's not my job. It's the whole body holds themselves together. So think about it. How would it feel if one part of your body decided not to be a part of the body? It decided that it's out of there. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't want to do its job. I feel that sometimes with my knee. Anyways, so the whole body, right? Secondly, by what every joint supplies. I put the Greek word up because it's a beautiful word, okay? So epi, so we talk about the epicenter. It's like on focus, right? But the second word, the choreagia, choreagia, is where we get our word of choreography. Choreography. Think of dancing. Yeah, I'm looking at you like, like oh, I heard not that word, right? And so it's, it's, I mean, could you imagine if there was no choreographer for some of the things that you, you see on Broadway? I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen some of the stunts that they do, like on Newsies, it's just mind-boggling to me, okay? Anyways, with the flips and everything, and some of these guys can do is just amazing. You know, I don't think even when I was that young, I could do anything like that, you know? But if they weren't choreographed just right, could you imagine doing a flip? It would just kind of like really be bad, okay? And I don't mean this to be wrong. But when we see people with cerebral palsy or something where their body isn't in concert, we realize what? There's something wrong. It's not working right. Do you understand? There's something wrong. It's not working right. It's not how God designed it. Isn't it sad when you see a bunch of churches 
that look that way. We ought to look, have a choreography by what every joint supplies, by what every joint brings to the dance. Isn't that kind of fun? Okay, it's like a square dance. If someone is dozy doing when they're supposed to be doing something, it, it kind of messes all things up pretty quick. Okay, so by which every part does its share. So does its share, energy, and does that word look like anything to you? Energy. There's got to be energy, not lethargy. Every part has to have energy in the whole. How much energy you got? Are you playing your part? What's the result? The growth of the body in love. The growth of the body, speaking the truth in what? In love. Okay, and we'll talk about that again over the next couple of weeks. But it's the growth of the body. The growth of the body. When the body synergistically is working together, the body will grow. You want to become big and strong? What's your body have to do? Train. And it's got to all work together, doesn't it? If one arm ain't helping, it, it, sort of, it doesn't do good to do the chin-ups, you know? Okay? One arm is strong, but the other arm is what? It's kind of lame. Okay? So, in the end, are you walking worthy of the calling with which you were called? Secondly, how would you describe your role within the local church? Now, again, we're going to talk about it a little bit more next week, okay? So I, I didn't spend a lot of time on it, but you're going to see the same question next week, okay? How would you describe your role? If the whole body is supposed to be working together, and the whole body is supposed to be doing things together, what's your function? What's your role? I warm my seat on Sundays. I make sure that in the wintertime that I bring my body heat. And I'm joking. You get it. But isn't that most churches? You show up on Sunday morning, you put in your time, and then you what? You leave. Say it again. You drop a tip in the plate. Yeah, that's why we don't have a plate. Okay? For real. I mean, that's, that's for real. It's like you're tipping God. God doesn't need your tip. He owns everything. The body of Christ, the family of God, is a unit, like a military unit. And we need to know one another. One of the things, I okay, you know I'm a serious man, but I, I love the analogies, sport analogies sometimes. And so they were talking about, um, I think it was Dan Johnson and Kendrick Green, and how they are, you could tell that these guys have become close with one another over the past year. They're rookies uh, last year, but they've spent ample time together because they're going to serve on their unit together on the left side of the line. And they have to choreograph all the time. They're going to dance together. And, and, and they got to know where the other one's going to go instinctively. Does it make sense? It has to be. they got to spend time together. And so Tim and Ben used to, when we had Awana, ran a three-legged race. Okay? They were my twins. Okay? But they would spend days tied together, running around the backyard and stuff like that. On purpose. Yeah, no, because I made them. <laughs> yeah, that's how they're so good. I was like, oh, you guys. Um, because they, you need to know. You need to, and, and so the more you know the other person, 
the more you know how you interact. Anyways, what's your role? What are you doing within the assembly? What is your goal for the assembly? You need to have a goal. And are you helping us reach the goal? So are you willing to be a vibrant asset in the edification of one another in this assembly and in the greater church? So we don't talk about it a lot, okay? but I'm just going to mention it real quick. Again, we don't have membership like typical church, because we believe if you're body, if you if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a member of the church, okay, from that perspective, and you can serve in certain ways. But we understand where we are in this culture, okay, in a litigious society, and so what we have is a statement of commitment and accountability, okay, where you can't vote, and you can't literally be in a leadership position unless you've gone through that, okay. So we want, I want to challenge you. I know David, Steve, and Chuck, and I would 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 join me in this. To, if, if, you, if you're just attending and you're not really doing something in this assembly, being a part of the assembly, we want to challenge you to do that. Don't just be a pew sitter, okay? And if you haven't committed to the assembly, do it. I, no, I don't think it's... Is it biblical that you have to do that? Not necessarily. I agree with that. It's pragmatic. But Paul, uh, Peter, sorry, in, in uh, Acts chapter 7, is that the where they do the, um, the, the widow's? Acts 7. Anyways, the reason, no, Acts 6, Acts 6. The reason they do it is pragmatic. It's, it's, it's all there. There was, a, there was an issue that was there, and they came up with the concept of deacons, okay? So there's a certain part where pragmatism does play out, okay? As long as you're seeking to be biblical in your pragmatism, okay? So we just want to challenge you to do that, okay? Finally then, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for you. Thank you for your goodness to us. You alone are the Most High God. This is your assembly. This is your body. It's not ours. And Lord, I just pray that you would help David, Steve, Chuck, and I to have wisdom, your wisdom, following your direction in outfitting and equipping this assembly. Lord, that you would allow us in a greater part of the the, the body of Christ even as an assembly, that you might use us in equipping others um, throughout the world to do your work for your glory. But Lord, I pray for those who are within this little assembly that you have brought here. I know you have brought them, and so you've brought them for a reason. So I pray, Lord, that each individual would seek to play the part for why you brought them. And Lord, that we would learn from your word we will learn from your truth and we would seek to magnify you and exalt you in that, that the world might know that you are real and that you are unified in your Godhead for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.